in this series that we've entitled Fruit of the Spirit. And uh, this is a great way to dovetail our uh, whole series that we've done on living in the light. John told us over and over again that living in the light meant that we would be different. But what would that difference look like? How would we be different in a world of darkness? Now, we talked about the three tests that John had, the relational test of love, the doctrinal test in regards to false teachers, and then the truth test in a world of error. But what does an individual look like who's walking or living in the light? Paul tells the church at Galatia that it involves these nine character qualities. We can't walk in the light if these aren't a part of our life. Uh, We can't say that we live in the light unless we see a healthy uh, involvement with these nine attributes that we are going to look at. And so let's look at what the Scripture says in Galatians 5. uh, And we're going to go ahead and start um, at uh, verse 13, and then we'll go all the way to verse 23. This is what Galatians 5, verses 13 uh, through uh, 23 says. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have, been, have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Let's pray. Father God, as we embark on another journey through your Word, Father, I pray that we would be led by the Spirit. Father, I pray that we would be a people who both the world and our Father in heaven sees that are abundant in fruit. Lord, I pray that we would not just strive to love, that we would just not strive to be joyful or self-controlled, but that would be the very fabric of who we are. And so, Lord, I pray, because we can't do this on our own, We need your Spirit. And so, Lord, I thank you that you've sent your Spirit to live and reside in each and every one of us so that we may be empowered to keep in line with the Spirit, to walk with the Spirit, and to live out the Spirit fruit that you have given us to live out. Lord, I pray, though, that it's not just a gift that is given, but it calls us to a level of commitment. And so, Father, I pray that we would commit ourselves starting today, starting this week, to be people of love. And as the weeks go on, Lord, that we would just look at each of these characteristics and ask the question, am I doing all that I can to live out these qualities in my life? So, Lord, we ask for your Spirit. And, Lord, we ask for the power so that we may live it out, so that others may see that we're different, so that the world of darkness may see that we live in the light, and so that we may be fruitful, and that we may produce fruit as you've called us to. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. 
For many of us, we are acquainted with this idea of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, For some, no doubt, you have heard messages uh, preached about this, and uh, even you can look back in your own life and say that there have been incredibly fruitful days in your life, in the history of your walking with Christ. But the problem is, as believers, many times we look at what we've done in the past and say, look at the fruit that I produced in the past. But one thing you're going to learn uh, in this series is that this fruit is not to be just uh, harvested in one period of time, but it is to be ripe in all seasons. And many times, as believers, we think that we can uh, look back on the victories of old and think that our time is done. Uh, This last summer, in fact, we've been in our home now for almost 11 years, and for 11 years, or I should say for 10 years, our grass has had no problem in growing. In fact, there are times where I want to just curse the grass because of uh, the amount of times that I have to mow it. Well, something amazing happened this last summer. I found three major spots where my grass just died. I don't know why it happened. I haven't been able to figure it out. And I've had a very, very difficult time as I've replanted now twice a new seed to get anything to grow. Some of us are like my grass. We look back at the years of commitment that we've lived out by living by the Spirit and living out the fruit of the Spirit. And we just, for whatever reason or another, we just say this year it's not going to be that kind of year. And I will tell you how frustrated as, as this lord of, of my yard, if you will, how frustrated I am because the goal of grass is to grow. That's the whole reason for its, its, its existence is to grow and, and be fruitful and, and to uh, continue to grow uh, greener and lusher as days go on. And when it fails to do that, it fails my expectations. Well, As we go through this series, I want us to not look at how we exhibited love some time ago, how we had a season of joyfulness uh, and a season of time uh, long past, but that we would ask the question, is that seen in my life today? Because just as I was frustrated and frustrated with my grass, so God becomes frustrated, so God becomes saddened when we don't live out how we are called to live Throughout the scriptures, the word of God tells us we are to be fruitful. In fact, one of the first commands that is given to Adam and Eve in the garden is to be fruitful and multiply. And that, of course, is involving the importance of inhabiting the earth and and physical uh, reproduction uh, taking place. But even throughout the scriptures, we see it in other ways. In the book of Psalms, uh, we see that Psalm 1 tells us that when we focus in on God and we meditate on his word day and night, the psalmist says we are like a tree that is planted along a stream which yields its fruit in season. This tree does not wither, but that it grows, and in essence, it is a fruitful life. I love what the psalmist says when he speaks of this fruitful life, of of this life that is dedicated to Christ. It prospers in all that it does. You know, when we talk about prosperous living, when we talk about being prosperous in any arena of life, the idea of fruitfulness comes about. Uh, This last week, of course, uh, many in our nation uh, watched a 25-year-old man from Akron, Ohio, uh, determine where he was going to play his next couple seasons of basketball. Now, why would we waste all that time waiting to hear it? Because this 25-year-old man was so good at this sport that he left high school to go play in the pros. And for the last seven years, uh, he has been one of the best basketball players. He has been fruitful. He has been prosperous in what he has desired to accomplish, and what, of course, the NBA wants him to do. He's done what's been asked of him. Many people will spend millions of dollars investing in companies, hoping that that company will be fruitful and prosperous, that the fruitful labors of that company will bring forth yields as investments are made that will make us more money as we invest in them. We look at a family and we see a family that is growing and a family that is, is seeing all kinds of growth as a prosperous and a fruitful family. Uh, we see it in churches. We see it, of course, even in the agricultural world. But here's something we must remember as we look at these fruit. 
As we look at these, we must understand, just as the farmer does, that just because our corn is only supposed to be knee-high by the 4th of July, uh, it's, it's over my head in many places. But it doesn't matter how tall the corn is. What matters to the farmer is how many bushels it will yield at the time of harvest. See, a lot of us look real prosperous. A lot of us look real fruitful. But the question is, how much fruit is being produced in the baskets when God, the great harvester, comes? And for many of us, we look real healthy, we look real prosperous, but there's very little being taken off of our branches. This is why Paul calls us to live by the Spirit, to be able to do that. Now, we love to talk about the fruit. What a great series to have during the summer, a colorful series, a series that just gets us thinking of, uh, in many ways, uh, a summer-type of feeling. I wanted to call this series a, a summer smoothie, if you will. I love smoothies, and they're full of fruit, of course. And just give us this idea of uh, the days in the sun, how refreshing it is when we live out in this world filled with the Spirit and living out this fruit. D.L. Moody once said that Christians love to visit the vineyard, but very few love to abide there. We like to visit the vineyard and look at all the things that are going on in the vineyard, but very few of us love to abide there. And over these nine weeks, I pray that we would abide in the Spirit and abide in this series And to do so, we have to understand some things. So before we even get to the subject of love, I want to look at some biblical principles that surround the fruit of the Spirit. What do we need to know about this fruit before we can even move on? And I want to give you eight very quickly. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. But I want to look at eight important understandings that we should have about the fruit of the Spirit. Number one, we cannot create this fruit on our own. We as people cannot create spiritual fruit. We're unable to do so. In fact, in Galatians 5.17, it tells us that the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Paul says there's a battle going on. You may have a desire to see spiritual fruit in your life, but it's not going to happen on its own. Something or someone has to come in and produce that fruit for us. The reason why is our sinful nature. The only thing that we can harvest in our sinful self are the following. Notice what he says. He says uh, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So you have these nine great qualities of the fruit of the Spirit, and then here are all these different ways that we live out our lives according to the sinful nature. The remedy to living out, uh, not living out these evil vices is to have the nine virtues that Paul shares with us that are the fruit of the Spirit. But we can't get there on our own. And it tells us that the fruit of who? Whose fruit is this? Help me out with that. Whose fruit is this? It's the Spirit's. It doesn't say the fruit of Timbadol is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. It says it's the Spirit's fruit. And so the first thing we must understand is, is if we want to live out the fruitful life, if we want to see a fruitful yield in our lives, if we want to have a character that's like Christ, then we must first go to the Holy Spirit and say, I need your fruit. I need you to grow this fruit within me. And so we can't do it on our own. Notice the second thing. This fruit must be a complete package. This fruit must be a complete package. Notice that he doesn't say the spiritual fruits are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He says fruit. It's singular. And there's a reason why that is so. It's not a textual error, but it's a complete package. We can't go uh, and look at spiritual fruit like a buffet line. Oh, well, I I like love, and so I'll take a big portion of love. But self-control, just give me a little spoonful of that. I'll pass on the patience, because who likes patience anyway? 
you know, and uh, when it comes to peace, just maybe a little portion of peace. Some of us look at the spiritual fruit and say, I can be really good at love, but if you want me to show self-control, you've gone to the wrong individual. That's not what the Spirit is asking of us. We are to take all of the fruit. The best way to explain it is to look at the fruit, these nine characteristics, as a cluster of grapes. We don't call each of the grapes that are on that cluster a different name. They're different. Each have different sizes, textures, even different in taste. Some are different in their uh, times of growth. But nonetheless, they are one singular fruit, a cluster of grapes. It's a complete package. It's not something that we can pick and choose. We must live out all of these. Uh, Number three, this fruit has to do with Christian character. This fruit has to do with Christian character. What this means is we just can't be um, a person who loves, a person who is joyful, a person who shows patience, a person who is self-controlled. No, we must be people of love, people of joy, people who are self-controlled. It has to be the very essence of who we are. These can't be nine traits or nine activities, is a better terminology, that we live out uh, in our daily life. But they must be the very essence of who we are. That's why, again, we must go to the Holy Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit who lives in us and can guide us to that way. It involves our character. Now, in church, we talk very little about spiritual fruit in comparison to spiritual giftedness. And we will talk about the individual and we'll say, wow, Tim has the gift of preaching and the gift of leadership, and, and, and that's why he's one of our pastors. I would hope that I would not be known for the messages that I preach, but that there would be a different kind of description. Uh, Tim is a man of love. He's a man who is joyful amidst all circumstances. He's one who is self-controlled. He's one who's patient. This is the kind of individual he is, and because of this spiritual fruit, he's one of our pastors. We put such an emphasis on gifts, but let me ask you this. If I got up here and was the most charismatic and most uh, wonderful communicator on the earth, and I lived out a life that had no love, no joy, no peace, no patience, no gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, or self-control, how many of you would really want to hear me? Probably not that many. You cannot show and live out a life of spiritual giftedness unless you live out the spiritual fruit in your life. Because if you live your gifts and you do ministry apart from the spiritual fruit, you will fail in God's economy when it comes to your service. Number four, this fruit must be seen individually and corporately. And what I mean by that is that we must all, as individuals, strive to live out the spiritual fruit, uh, live out the spiritual fruit in our lives. We must always be growing. We will be held responsible for the amount of fruit that we bear uh, in the body, the Scripture says, that we will stand before Jesus one day and articulate for that. But it also involves us as a church. Now, simply stated, what this means is that if you have a group of individuals here at Village Bible Church who live a life of love, I will show you a church that loves. If we are a people who are joyful, I will show you a church that is joyful. I will tell you that if we are not a people of peace as individuals, we will never be a people of peace corporately. And so what it means is we just can't say, well, I'm a person of love, but I go to a church that doesn't love one another very much. I'm a person who is self-controlled, but when we get together, uh, we can't have a conversation because we're devouring one another as the uh, church at Galatia was. We must be a church that lives out these fruits. These must be characteristic, that when guests come into our midst, they don't just see, wow, they, they have a nice service, and they have some nice buildings, and they have some nice programs, but that the people that walk into our midst, whether it's their first time, or whether it's their 101st time, they would see people who love, people who are joyful because of what Christ has done in their life, people who are self-controlled and, 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 and the like. We must make sure that this is seen in our lives as individuals and lives as a church. Uh, The next one, this fruit does not yield its crop at the same time. 
We don't have to look very hard. Uh, for many uh, that are planting gardens and have gardens right now, the harvest doesn't come in all at once. Uh, there are uh, things that are coming in uh, right now. In fact, uh, Harold Darge was telling me that he's got a big uh, head of cabbage just ready to harvest right now. Now, not all of his cabbage is ready, but this one is. And what we need to understand is as we look at this corporately, uh, you may be living out the spiritual fruit in great abundance right now, but that doesn't mean everybody else's. One thing I'm learning as a father is my children didn't come equipped with spiritual fruit production in their lives. They're learning what it means to love. They're learning what it means to be joyful when we even tell them no to things that they want. They're learning to be good and kind and gentle and to be self-controlled. These things are growing at different places. And for some of us who have walked with the Lord a long time, this may be something of a review for us. But we must recognize that if we want to be the church that God has called us to be, then we must understand that the person sitting next to us may be beginning the journey of understanding spiritual fruit and seeing that production in their lives. Notice the next thing. This fruit is the sum total of Christian living. Some people have asked the question, and probably one of the greatest questions that's asked of of pastors is, what is God's will for my life? God's will for our lives is that we would not live uh, according to verses 19 through 21 of Galatians 5, but that we would live with the fruit of the Spirit, and that our lives would be indicative of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You say, Tim, why do you keep repeating them? Because we need to remember, we need to be reminded of these things because this is it. You show me a life that is living out these things and I'll show you a life that is close to God. You show me a life that longs to live by the Spirit, I'll show you a life that longs to be in God's Word, that longs to be holy. And so if you're trying to understand what is the Christian life all about, it is living out these things Because the Holy Spirit that lives and guides us is producing in greater amounts these fruit that are so important to our lives. These nine characteristics, understand, are not for the Christian elite, but they're for all of us, old and young. These are virtues that we should be teaching our children, and these are virtues that we should always be putting into our lives every day as as adults. Next one. This fruit isn't a competition. What I mean by that is the production of this fruit isn't to look and say, look how much fruit I have. Wow, look how great I've done. But look at you, you've done very little. Look how little fruit you have. We need to understand that, again, it's not a race, but that we are called to our own uh, involvement. We are responsible for our own fruit. And so when we gather together and we look, we should not say, well, uh, you, you don't have the kind of love that I do. You don't have the kind of joy. And, and stick our thumbs in our ears and go, na-na-na-boo-boo, look how great I am compared to you. But that we should be praying. And we should be praying for one another. I, I love what it says in uh, the last verse of chapter 5. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And then he goes on in, in chapter 6 that he says, hey, if one of you gets caught in sin, in essence, if one of you gets caught in verses 19 through 21, you who are spiritual, you who are living out verses 22 and 23 in your life, those that are living by the Spirit should be the ones to restore them, but do it gently. But be careful, you who walk by the Spirit, because you could also be tempted. And what he says is instead of competing about the spiritual fruit in your life, carry each other's burdens. And so what does that mean? That means when someone says, you know what, I am failing at loving my family. I am failing at being joyful. I'm failing at kindness. I'm failing at self-control. You don't look down your nose at them and say, what a terrible sinner. You who have a production of the fruit in your life should pray for them, should encourage them, should carry their burdens. It's not a competition. It is an opportunity for us to show the love of Christ in his church. Finally, bearing fruit is a commitment that we are called to make. 
Yes, the fruit of the Spirit is something that is given to us. Yes, we cannot produce it on our own. But understand this. If we want to see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, then it involves three things. I want you to write this down. If you want to see these uh, nine characteristics in your life, then it involves, yes, the grace of the Holy Spirit to give you these things, but involves, first of all, committing to take on the character of God. You want to live out these fruit, then you must live like God does. You cannot live as Tim or as another individual or even as yourself and think that you're going to come up with these things. To do this, we must imitate God. We must imitate the Spirit. We must long to live as Christ did. Uh, The second thing is, is that uh, if we are going to live this way, then it involves us being enamored and devoted to God in every facet of our lives. The world's going to tell us that this isn't the way to live. Uh, It's not the way to be happy. And we can fall prey to that unless we become so enamored with Jesus Christ and the way he lived and the way he loved and the way he sought uh, joy and peace the way he was patient with us and and that he was kind and gentle and self-controlled. The reason why he was who he was was because he lived this way and he obeyed his Father in heaven. And so that means that we must be enamored and devoted to God. And finally, it means that we must live humbly before our God. We must never think that we've arrived. But each and every day we must humble ourselves and ask God to give us greater grace in our time of need so that we can love greater, so that we can show a greater level of peace and patience with the people around us, so that we can show joy unspeakable and be self-controlled in troubled times. This is what the Scripture wants us to know about fruit. And so we come uh, to the first of the fruit. Now, we've talked about love uh, for uh, many different times, on many different occasions in 1 John. And so I want to give you three very important truths about love, hopefully that are a little different than what we've learned about. And to do that, I want us to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. So if you're in the book of Galatians, you're going to go to your left. And uh, before uh, the Gospels and the book of Acts and Romans, or after Acts and Romans, you'll find uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. Now, whether or not you've been in church a lot, there's no doubt that you've attended weddings, and this passage of Scripture is the love chapter. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, no doubt you have heard uh, this passage read at uh, weddings. And this is what it says. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing." If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. The first thing that Paul wants us to understand is, number one, this has nothing to do with the lovey-dovey wedding-type ceremony. Paul is not preaching a wedding ceremony when he writes this. But he's talking to a very divided church that is all about who has what gift and who is using what gift. It's involved in a church that the division has come because there is sin that is being left undealt with and as a result of that is growing within the ministry of the church at Corinth. And he writes to us and he says, hey, if you're going to get anything, if you want to pursue anything, let it be love. And so the first thing I want us to understand about love and this fruit is the preeminence of love. Love is the most excellent way. In fact, at the end of this chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, it says, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And he begins this passage with uh, three verses that talk about how preeminent love is. He says, first of all, if I was to speak in the tongues of angels and men. Now, that was a huge issue because in chapter uh, 11 and 12, uh, especially chapter 12, we see this whole question about the use of tongues in the church. And tongues was a gift that a lot of people like to use. 
I think in many ways it it's probably was one of those upfront ministries uh, that people would long to be a part of. Let me show my gifts in front of everybody so they can see how great I am and how smart I am and, and all of that. And so that's why we must be very careful uh, for those. I, I tell the worship team this all the time. Uh, be careful that you're not just doing your ministry because there's an audience. Would you be willing to come each Sunday if nobody was here to worship? And I have to ask that question for myself. Would I be willing to preach if there was no one? Would I be willing to preach if, if, if it meant some things in my life that, that I would go in one of the back janitor closets and proclaim the word of God and still walk away as content as I am in speaking in front of crowds? Now notice what he says. He says, it doesn't matter what you say or do. Who really cares? So you do all this amazing stuff. So you can say all these amazing things. He goes on in verse uh, 2. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I have all this knowledge and I can fathom all mystery, I'm great. And Paul says, no, you're not. If it's done without love. And then another person will say, but I, I can have the faith that can move mountains. I've got big ideas and thoughts about who God is, and I believe that God can do them. But he says, without love, you are nothing. And then he says, what about you who says, I give a lot. I put a lot in the offering plate. I give to the poor. I just surrender my whole life to ministry, even to the point that if I was told to martyr myself for the faith, I would be willing to do that. And Paul says, without love, it means nothing. How could Paul say that? How could Paul say that all those great things, all those things that we are called to do, you hear week in and week out to have faith that will move mountains. You hear over and over again that we should have a knowledge and an understanding of Jesus Christ so that our faith will grow. And you're called each week to give. You're called each week to surrender. How could Paul say these things without love are nothing? The simple fact is a truth that I learned this week because I never really understood what that meant. I understood the principle of it, that you got to love, but what did that mean? I didn't learn it until I learned 1 John because God is love. And if you do these things without love, you do these things absent from God. Do you understand? You can have faith in God, but that doesn't mean that you love God. You can have faith in a religion and understanding that God is going to do some things. And it can be big, but you have not given yourself over and say, God, uh, the reason why I have faith is because I've seen how you've loved me. And I want to show you how I can love you. You can do ministry for God and not love God. You can give each week, and some of us do. And we do it out of habit, not out of a love and a dependence on God. Some of us are trying to love in a world that is unlovable. Some of us are trying to show love to those who have hurt us. We're trying to show love to those people that are difficult to love, absent from God. And you can't. You can't. To be a person of love, you must be someone who knows God. To live out a life of love must be lived out in a life that knows God and that loves to know God more and more and loves to love God more and more. Apart from that, I don't care what you do. I love what Paul says. He says, if you think this is going to work, he says, all you are is a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Well, what does he mean by that? Was he like me at times in, in marching band, put on the percussion, and, uh, and he just wanted to bring that up? No, what he's bringing up is the temple worship. When he was, of course, uh, living, uh, temple worship was huge, and they worshipped all different kinds of gods. And so what would happen is, is as a person would walk into the temple, you would have to awaken the gods. And so you'd go up to this large gong, and you would take the mallet, and you would hit the mallet, hopefully to wake up the sleeping deity. 
And what, John, uh, what Paul is telling us is he's saying, if you think you can live out a life that lacks love, and you think that's going to do something, it is like trying to wake up a deity that does not exist. You're doing it in a totally futile way. Nothing is going to happen. And yet so many of us try to love in the earth, in the world's way of loving, apart from God. It can't happen. No matter what you do, you fill your calendar with all the ministry, you walk uh, elderly ladies across the street, you do all these different things. It means nothing in God's economy unless you love God first. So notice, what does he say? He says there's a practice of love. Understand, love is preeminent. Next, there's a practice. I want to quickly just move through this because we don't do this very often, but I want to go through verses 4 and the first part of verse 8. And I want to just give you a running commentary. So if you want to write these things down, uh, I, would, I would encourage you to do so. But what does the practice of love look like? 320 different times in the New Testament, we are called to live out an agape type of love. A love that comes from God. A love that loves like God. It is best defined, as we've talked about in 1 John, as a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in the highest good of the one loved. A self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in the highest good of the one loved. Love is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It is a commitment. It's a commitment that seeks the highest good of the one loved. And so how do we love that way? How did Jesus love? Paul tells us. He says love is patient. This word patient literally means someone who is able to avenge himself, yet refrains from doing so. What it means is if we want to love this world, some people are going to wrong us. And when people wrong us, we have the right to seek restitution. We have the right to avenge. But a love that is patient says, even though I have that right, I do not reserve the use of that right. I'll be patient. Love is kind, he says. The meaning here is to show oneself useful. And what that means is when we want to love as Jesus did, we will volunteer to help others when they're in need. Not only volunteer, but there's an active quality to this kind of love because we will seek out ways to be kind to others. We will look and when we're walking in the neighborhood, we will seek to find ways to love those around us. When we're in the grocery aisle and we're sitting there and instead of looking at our watch and getting mad that the person ahead of us has 22 items instead of the 20 or less, we, we say, no, instead of reserving my right to tell that person off about their two extra items, I'll show them kindness. I will seek ways to love them, ways to encourage them. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Oh, in America, how we need to have this kind of love. Instead of wishing that I had what you have, love helps me to celebrate what God has given you instead of me being jealous of it. Oh, how I want to teach this to my children. One of them gets something, and the other two are crying. When birthdays roll around... The one is happy, the other two are totally depressed. So we have this great bipolar experience going on when gifts are being opened. One kid is elated, the others are screaming. But yet, it's not just in our children, it's in us. Oh, how we live and we look at what our neighbors have. They get a new car and what do we start doing? Cursing our car. Someone gets a new house, someone gets new furniture, and instead of celebrating, praise be to God that they have had the opportunity to do this, we start looking at our things and saying, God, where's mine? When do I get mine? And we start to hate the person that we envy because God has been gracious to them. Love doesn't do that. Love does not boast. This word literally means it's, it's a braggart. And it's used nowhere else in the Bible. It also means you can be a windbag. And so the love that we are to have does not brag about what I have or what I've done. We don't go through our resumes. 
You know, I've always been a fan of LeBron James. And there was a part of me that really wanted LeBron to come to Chicago. But any individual who has to make his decision on national television and have a couple hours special doesn't understand what it means to be a person of greatness. Because it was one big windbag of a story. And we do that all the time. Our conversations are about us. As a Bedal family, one thing that we have done, there's three pastors in the family, and so one thing we have to be so very careful with when we get together, we don't talk about church. Because there's this opportunity for competition to come in. And so what we talk about is things outside of how many are attending, how many are in our membership classes, what new building are we building, and the like. And so we start talking about, and one thing my dad has really focused us in on is what is God doing in your life? Let your families in your church talk about their church. Let's talk about what God's doing in our lives. It's amazing how little you are able to brag when you talk about your life of holiness instead of what you think you've done. Love is not proud. The word here is different than boasting. It means to blow or to puff. Pride has no place in the believer's life. You will never love the people around you if the world revolves around you. You never will. Because if the world revolves around you, then it's all about you and who cares what's going on in the lives around you. Love is not rude. The Greek word here means to behave in an ugly, indecent, or obscene way. Love never acts that way. Love always knows its surrounding. It always knows what to say at the right time, and it never is rude or offensive. Love is not self-seeking. This is the polar opposite of agape love. Agape love seeks the best in the one who is loved. Love that is self-seeking looks for the best for you. America lives with a self-seeking love. What does it do for me? Who cares what it does for others? Love is not easily angered. A person who is living under the influence of love is not prone to be violent, angry, or filled with exasperation. Love keeps no record of wrong. This is an accounting term. That means we must not add up and itemize the failures of others. I can't tell you how many times I've counseled uh, with couples And the issue that the couples have is they have a laundry list of what someone has done. Well, you don't understand, Tim. Ten years ago, this person did this. You don't know. Ten years ago, this is what so-and-so did. I'll tell you what. Until we start getting current with our issues and we keep these record of wrongs, we will never love those that we are called to love. Love does not delight in evil. We should not enjoy hearing about other people's sins or focus in on the bad stuff that happens to people. That's hard to do. That's hard to do in a world of competition. That's hard to do in a world filled with enemies that when we hear something bad happen, that we rejoice. This is true for the White Sox fans who rejoice when they see the Cubs lose. You should be convicted. That's delighting and evil, by the way. Love rejoices in the truth. The word truth here is opposite of evil. Instead of locking into the vices of others, love celebrates and applauds the virtues that is seen in those around us. It always protects. I I love this. The image here is a blanket that covers and that hides things. In fact, there was only one portrait ever made of Alexander the Great. And if you know about Alexander the Great, he had a, a massive battle scar on his forehead. And the picture was painted, and the, as the portrait was being painted, the artist felt so important that this man of greatness would not be shown as a man that had flaws. And so he created a shadow that covered the scar so that he would not be seen as a man who is broken and uh, beat up because of the issues of war in his life. But he covered it. So when we love, we should be one who covers the wrongs of the people around us. The Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. And as a result of that love, trust. The idea here is we don't lose faith in others even when they've messed up or hurt us. We hope for the best. Love always hopes. The idea is to expect with desire. Some of you are married to some pretty pitiful people. 
and you're ready to give up loving on them. And you say, you know what? I've loved all that I can. The Bible says that if you truly love them, you always hope. You always yearn for the day that God will bring your spouse or that child to a place that you've hoped for and longed for. It perseveres, meaning it remains under. Love hangs in there with others in long-term relationships. We're going to spend eternity with each other. We might as well learn how to love here on earth. And so what does that mean? It involves the people we are to love. Very quickly, who are we to love? We're to love those closest to us, our family, our friends. Someone once said, to love the whole world for me is no chore. The only really problem is my neighbor next door. How true is that for us? For many of us, we can love uh, other people far more than we can love the family that we live with. We can love other individuals and help them in their time of need, but we can't love the ones that are closest to us. How can you start to show love to the people that are nearest to you? Number two, love those that are different from you. It is very difficult for us not to have negative attitudes towards people that aren't like us, who talk differently than us, who have a different color skin than we do, who live in a different part of the world than we do. We don't understand it, and so we fail to love. That's why things like missions trips and opportunities to see the greater world allows us to not have this small view of the world around us, but to be able to see people different than us love one another and love the God that they serve. Number three, love those who disagree with you. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to love those who you think are wrong? Oh, as soon as we disagree with one another, we become warring factions against each other. And the Bible tells us we are to love even those who irritate us. To love our enemies. It's easy to love those who are easy to love. It's easy to love my children when they're smiling and when they're really cute. It's hard when I come home from a hard day of work and, and just want to relax for a moment and, and lay on the couch or, or in bed for just a couple moments and I've told them that and they think that dad has become a trampoline. It's hard to love. But we're called to do it. But even harder than that is to love someone who has wronged you, to love someone who has hurt you, someone who has taken something from you. Some of the greatest lessons I've learned about love has been when things have, have, people have wronged me. And God says, Tim, there's a decision that you need to make right here and right now. Do you love them, even though they've done a great evil to you? I say, I can't. And he says, but I did. Love those who irritate you. I love what the Archbishop Cranmer said. He said, if you disfavor, he said that if you did him a disfavor, you had him as a friend for life. Before he was martyred, he made a very surprising statement. I never had a greater pleasure in all my life than to forget and forgive the injuries that were done to me and the ability to show kindness to those who sought evil against me. We are going to be hurt. We are going to be wronged in this world. But Jesus shows us what it means to demonstrate love. That even though we were sinners, even though we hated him, God sent his son Jesus to die for us. So how do we live a life of love? Three very quick things this morning. Number one, seek forgiveness. Oh, how unlovable at times we are. Seek forgiveness. Say you're sorry. Seek an opportunity to repent, whether it's of another individual, whether it's of God. We are an unlovable people. The Scripture tells us of the world that we are without love. We lack the natural affection that we should have for one another. Number two, focus on God's love for you. The only way you will be able to live out the practice of love the only way you will live out love to the people you are called to love is to look at Jesus and see how Jesus demonstrated his love for us. Because I could look at my neighbor and I could look at my friends and say, they don't love their kids like I do. They don't love their wife like I do. Look at all these things that I do. But when, and I could be right, but when I look at Jesus, I fail every time. So look at Jesus and see how Jesus loved because it will show us we've got more work to do. And finally, this week, this summer, 
Find opportunities. Force yourself to find opportunities to show love to as many people as you can. It may mean giving that waitress a greater tip. It may mean smiling at work a little more. It may be saying a kind word even to the one who has reviled you for so long. It may be helping out your children in a way. It may be children helping out your parents. Husbands, it may mean washing the dishes. Wives, it may mean uh, showing love and affection to your husband. Find ways to do it. If we want to live the life of love, if we want to, as we read in our scripture today, be imitators of God, then we must live lives of love. The first fruit of these great fruit of the Spirit that we have been given, the one that is preeminent above all, let us live it out as people of love. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that we would seek to love. Father, first that we would love you. That, Lord, we would love you because you first loved us. And so, Father, I pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit, we would be reminded of things like the cross, the love that you showed us by enduring the pain and the agony of being separated from your Father and, and living that out in a life of obedience. Father, I pray that as we look to you and the love that you've shown us, that we would in turn love those around us not seeking the accolades, not seeking uh, the prize of being the best this or best that, uh, but like you, showing love even though those that you love didn't deserve it. And so, Lord, I pray that because we've learned about love, because we have taken this and made this a part of our lives and have committed to this, that we would seek forgiveness, that we would seek to right the wrongs of how we have been unloving to people, that we would then find ways to do it. Father, I pray in the days and weeks to come, that there would be a wonderful harvest of love. Lord, let us love the community around us. Let us love the people in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces so that in our love, they might see you. And in our love, they might hear of your gospel. And in our love, that we may have the opportunity to lead them to a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we thank you for the love you've shown us. Now, Lord, as we leave this place, let us love as you did. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Go and live lives of love by loving one another now in fellowship. You are dismissed.